Hello, welcome to another episode of Book Shambles. This is producer Trent off the top reminding you we're going to be at the Edinburgh Fringe very soon. Six episodes of Book Shambles live and free to attend as part of the PBH Free Fringe on August 17 and then 19 through 23rd. We've uh, announced two of the guests already. Robin is going to be hosting those solo while Josie is still on maternity leave. The two guests we've announced is August 20. Ian Rankin is going to be our guest and on the 23rd it will be Mark Watson we're announcing the other guests in the coming days so make sure you come along to those we've also announced in the last couple of days we're going to be doing a episode of book shambles live as part of the London podcast festival which is at King's Place we're going to be doing that uh, on September 8th at 7pm. Tickets for that are from the Cosmic Shambles or the King's Place website. Uh, we haven't announced who the guest is yet, but it will be the live return of Josie Long after her maternity leave. So Robin and Josie will be hosting that together. Tickets are available now. Tickets also available for the launch of Robin's new book, I'm a Joke and So Are You. That's going to be on November 1st, also at King's Place. And that will be a psychological variety night. Robin is going to be emceeing and doing some stand-up associated with the book. And he's also going to be chatting with uh, some very, very special guests who are interviewed as part of the book. Tickets for that are just 15 quid and you also get £3 off the book if you uh, buy a ticket through us or King's Place. And Robin will obviously be signing books after the show. And remember that uh, tickets for Nine Lessons are on sale as well. Nine Lessons 2018, four dates at King's Place again uh, in December 14th, 15th, 19th and 20th. Robin hosting with... All sorts of different guests, as usual, a huge mix. Uh, Josie Long's going to be there. Adam Rutherford, the Octavia Poetry Collective. Uh, we've just announced that they're going to be there on the 15th this week. They were great uh, when we saw them at Latitude and they're on Book Shambles the other week. Uh, Nikesh Shukla's going to be there. Uh, Helen Chersky, Dr. Lucy Rogers, uh, Dr. Carl over from Australia uh, for these shows. Uh, lots of people check that out. Tickets are available for that now. And so on to this week's episode, uh, which is a little bit different this week because uh, Josie is still on her maternity leave and Robin is on holiday out of the country. As difficult as it is to believe that Robin Ince actually takes any sort of holiday, he is at the moment. So uh, this episode is one that we'd uh, planned on doing uh, a little while ago anyway uh, with myself hosting, chatting to Matt Oxley who is a, one of the world's leading writers and authors and journalists in the world of motorcycle racing. I dare say most listeners will not know that bike racing uh, is my... Uh, Robin has mentioned this on a couple of uh, podcasts and some articles and stuff, that, yeah, the bike racing is my one of my other great passions and uh, something else I'm, I'm heavily involved with or have been heavily involved with. My family's been involved with bike racing and motorsport uh, since I was little. Uh, I, used to, I used to write uh, for various publications about MotoGP and uh, did radio about it as well. Um, not as much anymore, obviously, working with uh, Cosmic Shambles and stuff, but Matt Oxley uh, is someone I've wanted to have on Book Shambles for a while because I think his books, uh, apart from being brilliant, they kind of transcend 
being interested in motorcycle racing. They're the stories of a people and the, the politics, the world politics, uh, Stealing Speed, his book about the, the Cold War and engineering and the Cold War, which we talk about, is fascinating. So when uh, Robin and Josie were both away, we thought it was a great chance to get Matt on the show and have a chat to him about his new book and sport writing in general, really. So we hope you enjoy this episode. Here it is, me chatting to Matt Oxley. So uh, we've kind of loosely start anyway. So this is a book shambles extra with uh, me doing it today because we're going to talk a lot about motorbikes and I don't think Robin should be put in charge of talking about motorbikes, quite frankly. So I'm with Matt Oxley. Hello. Who is... Writer, journalist, motorcycle aficionado, can we say aficionado? Uh, well, it sounds very grand, but yeah, that'll do, yeah, I'm happy with that. Yeah. So, question to start. I'm always interested in people like yourself who write about a very specific thing. What comes first? Were you a writer? You studied writing then, oh, I like motorbikes, or you were a motorbike person and then went, how can I turn this into a job? Yeah, I, I kind of, I was at school... And um, I kind of liked English, so I was reasonably good at it, I suppose. But I, I, I got into motorbikes when I was 16, 17, when my brother got one. And, and I was like, wow, yeah, I'm into this. And, and then I used to buy all the magazines when I was at school and, and, and read all these stories by these guys who were getting the latest bikes and riding around and doing stupid things on them. And I just thought, wow, that's the job for me. And uh, yeah, got a job as a journalist when I was 21. You know, I'd been a dispatch rider and a printer and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Got a job as a bike journalist with a motorbike magazine in 1981 when I was 21. And um, been doing it ever since, basically. <laughs> but you've kind of taken the different route as well. Like, you, so many, like, film critics are failed directors or people who couldn't... You've actually gone out and you rode yourself. You know, you won an Isle of Man, for Christ's sake. Yeah, I kind of... Um, I've done a bit of everything, I suppose, and... Uh, I would hope that my kind of the fact that I did race and so on for a while and I would hope that that allows me to kind of get inside the whole kind of thing of motorbike racing um, which I'm still entranced by sort of 40 years later you know I mean it's it's a sport um, but there's something about motorbike racing motorcycle racing especially that makes it different I think it was Hemingway whether he really said it or whether he was just rumoured to have said it you know that there are only three sports uh, motor racing uh, bullfighting and mountaineering the rest are mere games and, and, and you know I'm not a bullfighting fan but I would I would agree that they that any sport that has a huge amount of physical danger mm-hmm. makes it completely different from every other sport you know if you can go to the line of a race knowing that you might not come back, that makes it very, very, very different from going out to play football or golf or cricket or rugby or whatever, you know. And, and, and it's the psychology of that that fascinates me about motorbike racing as much as the motorbikes themselves and, and so on and so forth. We'll come back to that because I don't want to jump around to I mean, we normally jump around, but we'll see what happens. When you talk about in 1981 is when you first, what have you, I think I first read something by you probably in, Rev, was it called Revs, that Australian yeah, newspaper? Yeah, there was an, uh, I, I used to flog stuff to whoever, whoever <laughs> would buy it off me and, and Revs, yeah, was um, now defunct now. Uh, yeah, it was, a, it was an Australian mm. motorcycle magazine paper. So yeah. obviously the sport has changed completely. What's changed in 
the way you have to write or report about motorcycle racing or sport in general from then to now? Um, it has changed, obviously, because everybody um, is much more aware of what's going on. Back in, if you were, if you were in Britain, if you live in Britain back in the 80s, 70s, 80s, you know, you would not know who had won the race on Sunday um, until probably the Wednesday when you bought Motorcycle News because the, the Nationals didn't cover anything. Whereas now you can watch the thing live, you, you, you know, you've got riders tweeting and da 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 you know, you, you, you can actually get, you're quite, you're much more on the inside than you ever were. Mm. So that does change the way you write because your fans what you hope are a lot more educated about what's going on than they than they used to be so so you have to work a lot harder i suppose yeah. to try and find out stuff that they don't already know um so that, so that's that's changed i mean back in the late 80s i was working for one of those dial-up report things where, where i used to ring up a, a specific number after the race and um Write a, and speak a little report, five minute report into the into the telephone, and then and that was done on an 0845 number. You know, people <laughs> would ring up and find out what happened. So that showed, and, and I thought, wow, this is how I'm going to make the living my living for the yeah. rest of my life. I'm just going to ring up, and and that'll be it. You know, and how things change. Mm. You know, that's 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And now, if um, you're not live tweeting a race as it happens, exactly, exactly. You know, yes. Yeah, so that has changed. But I, I kind of so my day job is covering MotoGP. But I'm also fascinated by the history of the sport as well and, and become more and more, you know, as you get older, you tend to get more and more fascinated about what mm. happened in the, in, in, in the olden times. And, and I do, and, and going back to how, how, how has reporting changed, that the, this book that I've just done recently, there's a chapter in there about US American board track, which was a lethal, it's kind of wall of death racing in the 1910s in America around one mile banked oval board track made out of pine all over the mm. about 60 tracks all over America so this is the thing if people don't know it this is like Guy Martin did a thing like a wall of yeah. death thing and like it's exactly. about 85 Elvis exactly. movies that sort of thing yes but but this is but this is you know 10 riders riding at 100 miles yeah. an hour <laughs> around around this banked quarter mile half mile one mile oval um, which is just like a wall of death no brakes no gearbox nothing I mean so dangerous I mean the reason the the sport lasted only 10 years because so many people were getting killed. But I, I, I got on, onto like the LA Herald and so on and went through all the race reports from back then. And they are just works of beauty. You know, I mean, obviously, because there was no radio then, there was no, you know, to, to any extent, there was no TV. So the, the reports, you know, really live and breathe. And, and, and you, they, they are so lyrical, just beautiful things and they're just a report about a motorbike race and I read mm. them now and, and they do make the hair, hair stand up on the back of your neck reading them 110 years after they were written yeah. so that I found that really fascinating that you know they were trying to they obviously had to completely describe what was happening because there was no, yeah. no way that the you readers would YouTube a bit of it exactly exactly and they were astonishingly good astonishingly good I think that's often the case and you see it with like science writing and stuff as well people assume that Darwin or someone's quite dry and then you go back and you read those books and they're just they're beautiful works of literature never mind the genius of yeah. science that's in there the actual exactly. writing yeah. and there must be a lot yeah I've never really thought about that the old sports reporting as well just 
lyrical writing. I, and I'm sure it probably goes right the way through all sports. I'm sure if there was a report of a, a good report of a rugby match, or mm. you know, in 1910, I'm sure it would probably be quite similar. You know, I, I think American writing back then was. I would say, in some ways, a step ahead of the British because it was much more free and and, and yeah. You read old English reports and they and they're kind of quite funny actually, aren't they? Because they're so <laughs> sort of stiff upper lipped, and um, you know you read Brooklyn's re- reports of of Brooklyn's races from you know the nineteen tens, nineteen twenties, and they're all very they are very dry and mm-hmm. you know there's no Christian names. It's just you know. <laughs> First initial CJ Maillard won the you know the thousand cc race um, at a stupendous speed. Whereas in the states, every rider has a nickname. You know, it's, mm. uh, you know, Eddie Crusher, whatever. You know, everybody <laughs> had a, had a kind of horrible kind of nickname. Yeah. You know, you know, fearsome or or you know Joe Mile a Minute blogs or whatever. You know, they, they all had these amazing nick- nicknames because that's just the American way, isn't it? To kind of yeah. it's become our way as well. Well, so you. That's the great thing about this sort of stuff that I love about the history is you see not only the motorbikes, but you see the culture, Mm. you see society, you see politics, you see industry, all of those sort of facets coming together, you know, and nothing exists on its own. Yeah. Everything exists of its time. And and that's what I try when I'm writing my kind of motorbike racing history books is try to get across. It's not just about the motorbike racing. It's about the whole world that was going on at that time mm-hmm. and, and motorbike racing was just one little facet of it. Bit of it, yeah. So what was it that got you into that side of it? Because obviously, you you know, you do your journals and your reports and all that sort of stuff, but you've also written a lot of books that are like that, that they're, they're actual beginning-to-end stories of whether that's the new book Speed or Stealing Speed or the Age of Superheroes. You know, there's lots of storybooks, essentially. What got you into wanting to tell that side of it rather than, you know, Casey Stoner wins by 12 seconds, etc., etc. Yeah, well, the, the kind of, the race reporting is all very well, but, I mean, I, I suppose I'm into the romance mm-hmm. of it, you know, and um, Valentino Rossi said at Aston, you know, there's a lot, and he, the, the last MotoGP race, he said that there's a lot less romance in racing now than when he started 20 years ago, and, and but, you know, you go back to the 70s, 60s, 50s, 40s, 20s, 10s, um, start of the 20th century, man, there was so much romance in racing then, and the stories are just astonishing. I mean, the things that people did, not just on the racetrack, but off the racetrack, are just wonderful. And, I, and I've always had a love of history, which my dad kind of um, gave to me, I think. I remember when I was about nine or ten, he bought me a series of books called They Saw It Happen, yeah. which, I, which I obviously didn't know at that time, but this was primary history, and it was all written going right back to the to the um, to, to Vesuvius erupting, who, mm. whoever watched it, I can't remember, but um, and wrote about it. So it was all primary history, and I think that really. Now I look back, I, I look at that and realise that that was the beginning of it all. You know, and, and what I like about history is you can, you've got the ability or, or the, the chance to try and put people there. You know, that's mm. what you're trying to do is actually trying to make people feel the way that people felt at that time yeah. whether they were the riders or the spectators or the engineers or whatever um, and I think that's what's really beautiful about writing about history and motorbike racing history is that you can do that and you can bring all the other facets into it you know because motorbikes obviously involve his- industry there's a lot of industry involved in mo- making motorbikes and industry tends to be involved with politics 
mm. you know, and everything. So it all kind of mixes up, and you know, you go. Stealing Speed was about um, the kind of the Cold War and how secrets were smuggled from the West, from the East Germany, motorbike secrets from East Germany to Japan and so on. And my latest book is is more about. Well, it starts in the 1890s with the very first motorbike race in Britain, won at, in 1896, won at the speed of 27 miles an hour, you know, with the spectators agog. They'd never seen anything like it. Mm. And trying to get people, trying to make people now feel like they must have done then, you know. I think the only way you could change the world the same way now, the way that the internal combustion engine changed it 120, 130 years ago, would be by teleportation. Yeah. You know? yeah. That would be, you know, if, if suddenly you, I could just say, right, I'm off to Sydney, I'll, I'll, I'm going to have dinner in Sydney. If you could do that, or lunch in Sydney even, um, I think that would have the same effect on the world, you know, completely, just completely blew everyone's mind and did for... 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah. You know, it wasn't until the space race started after the Second World War that, that people kind of stopped thinking about engines so, so much. You know, I think, I think in the 10s, 20s, 30s, the big thing, the new exploration, if you mm. like, we'd explored Africa, we'd explored South America, etc. The new exploration was going faster and faster and faster, you know. Um, and again, I find that, that whole fascination with it you know I mean thousands and thousands and thousands of people turning up to watch people break records and so on you know it was much bigger then than it is now yeah you look I mean it's not motorbikes but you look at the fascination around someone like like Chuck Yeager and there was that constant just going that little bit faster we sports a really interesting one and it gets this sport is its own thing it's the stats it's the this it's the that but all of the big moments and the big people, they're not tied to the to the stats. They're these moments in history or they're these personalities, whether it's, you know, Don Bradman lifted Australia out of the Depression or it's the stealing speed is such a... If you want to tell a bit of the story about that, that's when I got in contact with you. I was like, come on and chat about stealing speed because that book just well, fascinated me. Stealing speed is a... Uh, I wrote it about 10 years ago. It's a story that basically happened... It's focused on 1961. Um, there's a... a an East German motorcycle manufacturer called MZ, which was state-owned, um, started after the Second World War uh, out of DKW that existed before the, the Second World War. Um, and they had this tuner called uh, Walter Carden, who basically invented new ways of making the two-stroke engine go much faster. And with no money, no resources, you know, they were kind of, he was having to smuggle aluminium through, which you could before 61 because the, the, the Iron Curtain hadn't gone up then smuggling aluminium through um, from the west and so on he had nothing and yet he made his bikes go faster and faster and faster until they were sort of um, challenging the Japanese Honda and so on and, and they were racing for the 1961 World Championship and Suzuki who had just arrived at, in Grand Prix racing it was the start of the Japanese in the late 50s early 60s uh, were having real trouble and they decided the only way they were going to be able to make their two strokes go faster was if they were to get one of the MZ people to defect and they, they basically paid um, MZ's top rider to defect through the Berlin Wall um, and basically sell all of Carden's secret to them and it just so happened that it again you know racing colliding with politics and so on when his he, he basically had to uh, the, the rider Ernst Degner he, he was out of the country racing in Sweden when his wife and kids were going to escape to join him in the west 
um, and the morning they woke up in Berlin to make it across the border, mm. which you still could, that was the night that the that the Berlin Wall had gone up. Right. So you just get this amazing story of, of motorbike racing completely colliding with history. Um, and that's basically the story. And, and, and Degner goes to the West, he goes to Suzuki, and they win their first world championship. And, and the Japanese industry, motorcycle industry, takes off. So, you know, you just have that wonderful collect everything just coming together as one. I just, it's, a, it's an amazing story. Um, and hopefully we'll get a film made of it one day. Um, yeah, it's. It's for book shambles listeners who might be like, I don't want to read a book about motorcycle racing. It's such a great example of it's not really a book about motorbike racing because it's it is it's this this whole political story that just happens to be linked to one guy essentially wanting to uh, help Suzuki. Yeah, it's it's a it's a wonderful story. It's kind of one of those. It's one of those, you know, fact is, is stranger than fiction yeah. stories. You know, you, you probably couldn't... I mean, if, I, if, pe- if people want to... If I try to sum it up in one sentence, it's James Bond on bikes, basically. It's kind of... Um, but it's <laughs> but real. real. Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely real. I mean, it's one of those books... Where, you know, the, the more research I did, and travelling around, speaking to mechanics, you know, going to Ger- the former East Germany and speaking to mechanics, with a lot of the people involved were, uh, you know, were dead when I, when I wrote it. But speaking to mechanics, you just keep finding out mm. new angles and you, you know and you just think well that, can, that cannot have happened you know it's is that one of those bizarre. stories you kind of stumble on it and you're like how's no one written about this before like I can't be the first person that's found out about that this. was exactly my thing I mean I'd read about it just you know in, in other books just mm. referring to it and I thought wow you know that just sounds so good and, not, and so eventually I got, got off my ass and, and, and researched it and wrote a book about it yeah should move on to your new book, uh, which is Speed, The One Genuinely Modern Pleasure, which has just come out, like, yeah. very recently? Yeah, published it uh, about a month ago, something like that. Yeah. So, what I love about this book, first of all, is before the book actually starts, you just start with a two-page reading list. <laughs> I, I love a book that's like, before you read this, just here's, showing off. here's yeah. 200 other books yeah. you should read. I love it. Yeah. And then it starts with, and the whole book is kind of, in a way, structured around this Huxley quote yeah in um i think he i mean the book goes from basically 18 like i said 1896 till 1938 um and it spins around this hordus huxley quote i mean i've always been a i was a huge fan well still am you know you know one of the greatest minds of the 20th century um and he wrote a, a, an essay in search of a new pleasure in uh, i think 1930 and obviously he was experimenting with with drugs and so on and he you know and, and, and a brave new world is about mankind being living a very boring industrial or office life and needing some mm. means of escape at the weekend beyond alcohol you know and this is why he was experimenting with other things but then he wrote about speed and and he, and that's where the book quote title comes from he he, he was like wow that you know speed is the one generally modern pleasure you know he he driven it probably or been driven probably maybe 70 80 miles an hour and was just like amazed by by it you know so and so the the book is basically hangs off that whole thing and of of how you know even somebody like Huxley was completely amazed by speed um, mm. and and he thought it of it as a drug and so did many people you know it it, it it's an escape it, it it changes everything doesn't it you know if you're moving along especially on a motorbike because you're not surrounded by windows and door frames and you know whatever you are actually out in out in 
the open. Um, Don't know what that was. I was <laughs> <laughs> somebody's trying to get hold of us. Uh, you're out in the open, and, and and everything changes. You know, your perspective changes, and so on. And and, and again, that's what I'm trying to get across in the book is mm. is how these people were completely sucked in by this new thing, and and were just going faster and faster and faster, and quite often for not a lot of money, and risking their lives, and and and, and prepared to do anything. Um, I mean, I guess the climax of the book is this British guy, Cambridge. Um, uh, engineering and chemistry graduate Eric Crudgington Fernieho, who great name by the way. I know. I mean, <laughs> just you know, he's a bit of a sort of Terry Thomas character in his plus fours and so on and, and cravat, and uh, but completely skint. Lives in a little house outside the gates at Brooklands and um, has a supercharged Bruff Superior and is basically chasing the uh, the world speed record during the thirties and. You know, the 30s, obviously, the rise of fascism and Hitler, you know, used motorsport an awful lot. Mm -hmm. You know, even, you know, obviously everybody knows about the Berlin Olympics in the 1936, but motorsport was even more important to him than athletics because uh, it also didn't only show that you were good, a good athlete, it showed that you were a good engineer. Uh, it showed the Germans to be very good engineers, which obviously they were. Not only that, it, it allowed you to do an awful lot of research into the internal combustion engine, into yep. aerodynamics. Um, so Crudgington is, is battling on his own, you know, basically by selling petrol out of his house at Brooklands and, and fixing other people's engines. He's battling on his own against uh, BMW, who are fully backed by the Nazi party, and, you know, their bike is basically a Messerschmitt without wings in the end. Mm. It's, it's a cigar-shaped thing. It was the first kind of proper cigar-shaped um, uh, record-breaking motorbike. So he's, he's you've got Crudgington on his own, penniless, against the, the might of the Nazis. And, and then the Italians come in with Gilera, which is an Italian motorbike brand, again supported by Mussolini, who, who is trying to do the same thing as Hitler, is trying to show that the Italians are, are very brave, technically competent, and so on, and, and, and the bike that they had, uh, which was ridden there by their rider, Piero Taruffi, the, 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 the fuselage of that was made by Caproni, mm. who, who, while they were building um, the fuselage for his Jalira, were, were bombing the Abyssinians in North America, you know, and, and, and they were using, you know, the motorbikes as, as design templates for their... their Aeroplane fuselages, you know. So, so again, you've got this complete clash of um, politics, industry, motorbikes, you know, daring do, heroes, yeah, um, good against evil, poverty against riches. You know, it's just everything again, just all comes together. Mm. And it's like wow. Yeah. It's you mentioned this in the book as well, and we talked about it a little bit before that in the you know the fifties, the space race was got to beat the Russians to the moon. But back then, like the having the land speed or the airspeed record, it was a massive deal to these people. Exactly. Yeah. So how does that move? And, you know, not giving away too much of the book. It moves from we want to beat these, these records to getting into becoming a, well, a sport, an organised sport. And so MotoGP starts in 1949, and it just moves from this pure technical one person into an actual organised sport well it, 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 motorbike racing had already been an organised sport before 1949 that was when the kind of proper as we know it MotoGP started but 
back in the 20s and 30s, there were European championships and Grand Prix as well in Belgium, Germany, Britain, blah, 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 you know, all, all over the place. So it was already kind of organized, but um, you can imagine that in the 20s, and, and the, the, this book is quite a bit about that, about the 20s and 30s, how the people got around Europe, you mm. know, and I mean, mostly by train. So yep. they're loading their motorbikes onto trains. I mean, there, there's, there's one, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of comedy. It's like kind of, um, uh, there's a race in, in, in the Netherlands and they've got to be in Bilbao in northern Spain for, for the next Friday. And they have to catch something like eight trains or maybe more. And every train that they catch, they have to load onto the train. They load the bike onto the train, load the tools onto the train, get themselves onto the train, and then they get to the next train, the place where they've got to change, and they go to the guards van, and, 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 and the bike is buried in, in half a tonne of boxes of oranges and so on. So they've got to take half a tonne of the boxes of oranges out, and by the time they've done that, they've missed the train, and they have to get a ferry hit. I mean, it's just real cops and robbers kind of stuff. And um, I think this guy, just the most amazing adventure, getting from mm -hmm. the Netherlands to northern Spain, and then the guy falls off after about the first mile of the of the race and goes into a ditch and, and that's it you know so yeah <laughs> you know back then the traveling to the races was almost more of an adventure than the races themselves you know so there's all these stories to tell i want to talk a bit about so the addiction to speed that you mentioned as well is a thing that comes up a lot and we've had lots of you know neuroscientists and stuff on the show talk about these this thrill seeker not gene but the thrill seeker personality in researching all these people and you you know you did a lot of research on these books is there something that kind of sticks out with these people that you go they're drawn to this what is it makes these people what what's the similarity between these people in the 20s and you know mark marquez today what's this thing they've got oh, it's it's hard to know it, it's it's <laughs> it's um yeah, thrill-seeking, of course it is. Uh, and, and you can actually, I think, genetically pinpoint that. You know, I think, I think a lot of these things are kind of um, built into us. Uh, I mean, you know, I can, I can only go from my own experience. And, and I, when I got my first motorbike age 17, I, I quite quickly realised that I enjoyed going fast. But I'd also enjoyed doing that on a bicycle, you know. And, and, mm -hmm. and there is something, you know, watch a kid on a swing. Yeah? Yeah. And watch how, how, you know, and that's probably your first, uh, human, most human beings' first real kind of feeling of the G-force, mm -hmm. which is another thing. It's not just the speed, it's also the G-force, you know, um, making you feel, it's kind of changing how you relate to the world around you, isn't it? You, 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 your body is feeling something different and your eyes are feeling something different. Your ears are, he are hearing something different. Um, so I think... I think we all have that within us, but it's how far you want to take it. Do you want, you know, obviously if you you go from a slide, if you go from a slide or a swing, we've all fallen off swings, and and when you start racing motorbikes, you start falling off them. And a lot of people are like, well, that's it, I'm going to stop yeah. now. But you know, I carried on, and other people carry on. Yeah, it's 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 thrill seeking, and people have many times say that you know you must be mad. It's just the risk that you know you just like taking risks. That isn't that. Is, that's completely missing the point. Motorbike racers don't race because they enjoy taking risks. They race because they enjoy controlling the risk. Yep. They enjoy putting themselves 
in a risky environment or a risky situation, a potentially lethal situation, and then using their skill, their judgment, their bravery, and all these other things to make to get them out of that situation and, and to get closer to the edge than anybody else. And, and that is a very special feeling when you know that you are absolutely on the edge and you've got closer to the edge than anybody else, which is what happens every time you win a race. You know, that's yeah. what you've done. You've got closer to the edge. Um, and I think, I think that's, once you start racing, that's a bigger thing than the speed. I think the speed, once you start racing, becomes secondary. Mm. It's more about the limit and, yeah. and using your ability to ride the motorbike, to take, to take risks in a controlled way, your ability to develop the motorbike with your engineers, to, to allow it to get closer to that limit more safely. You know, it's a huge, huge thing. You know, mm. there's so many facets involved. So I, I think people, many, many people think, they look at motorbike races, they think, oh, you're just a thrill seeker. You're a risk taker. But that's really just, you've got to beat that to start off. But that becomes a smaller thing as you go along. It's more about, you know, working on your riding technique and so on and so forth. And, and it would have been the same back in the 1930s, but, but mm. kind of um, machines were a lot more basic then. So I think there was probably a lot more bravery involved then because you were never quite sure what was going to happen. I, I yeah. think now you can rely, pretty much rely on your motorbike not to break at 180 miles an hour. And you know if you come off, you're going to hit an air fence, not a brick wall. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, the sad thing about these books that I right that there is a lot of death and suffering in them you know but on the on the on the other side there's also a lot of glory and joy in them you know the, mm. the again people that look at motorbike racing and say it's all about death and suffering there is death and suffering in it but that's a smaller part of it mm. than the joy and the success you know people get a huge amount of joy from from doing this you know it's when you're talking about finding the edge as well i think of recently specifically someone like Jorge Lorenzo or Casey Stoner if you ask them what was your favorite race of your career it's never the you know fairing bashing battle it's it's the 101 by 30 seconds because I didn't make a mistake I rode perfect for an hour and it didn't feel like I was going fast necessarily I just did everything right and that excites them more than the thrill-seeking element yeah Yeah. exactly exactly well I, I would say some right you know you do get riders who like the, the fair they like bashing into yeah. each other and kind of boxing wrestling their way to the finish line with other riders and then there are people like Stoner and, and Jorge Lorenzo that kind of like to be out there kind of making a, a work of art out of the race by kind mm. of sweeping around the corners and hitting every apex and doing everything perfectly but then you'll, you'll even find them say well actually my best race was when I finished second you know you'll get that as well because they know yeah. the bike was rubbish on that day for whatever reason and, but they transcended the machine and mm. made it do things that it shouldn't have been able to do. And, and, and so that's quite... The, the racing brain, the top-level racing brain, is a very special thing because, you know, they're human beings, but they're having to kind of become half-machine. Mm. You know, it sounds a bit cliched, but, you know, a motorbike and, a, and its rider is a kind of conglomeration of, of, of man and, yeah. of man and machine much more so than a, than a car you know because on a motorbike you're actually you're a third of the machine's weight you know and you're moving around on it and and so on to, to control it so it, it does become um well the, the the latest book kind of there's a chapter about the futurists mm-hmm. and um you know the italian art movement kind of 
art movement stroke industrial movement stroke fascist movement of the sort of 10s 20s 30s and a lot of their artists who were try again trying to put the new world of speed onto canvas and which was an incredibly complicated thing because you know everyone had you know, painted horses got trotting past at 10 miles an hour, but suddenly there were these motorbikes and cars whizzing past at 70 miles an hour. And, you know, how, how, how do you get that across on canvas? And, and so they were breaking up, they were fragmenting images and so on to kind of get that kind of movement. But um, there were also uh, a couple of Italian, you know, there was an Italian, mostly Italian movement, painting motorcycle and their riders as centaurs. So they actually did even then they could see that it was a half man half machine thing so they were you know rather than it being half man half horse it yeah. was half man half motorcycle actually making the two into one so so um i'm just looking up a bit because there was a there was a quote that i forgot to mark that i wanted to talk to you about oh yeah it's right at the end actually we're talking about but if it didn't scare you stiff it wouldn't be right there's still there's that element that runs particularly through this book because it's you know it, uh, what what year does it end in? 1938. With the yeah. um, should I should I spoil it? No, don't spoil the end. Don't spoil the end. But yeah, that that quote is no because it ends up to that period where when you were saying that safety is important, but when you almost don't know, they didn't know what the boundaries were at that yeah. point. So they're like, well, if I'm not terrified, clearly I'm not doing this right, yeah. and. How, as someone who's worked in, in motorcycle racing since the 80s, how have you seen that from the period of this book to when you started to now, that attitude to what, what level of scared is acceptable, I guess? Yeah, I mean, it's changed hugely. Back when I started, um, you know, we were still racing on some, MotoGP was still racing on some part street circuits, which were lethal. You know, if you crashed, you know, the bikes back then were doing 180 miles an hour and, and, and there were still people getting very badly hurt. Not so much killed. I mean, there were people dying, but the amount of injuries, mm-hmm. you know, the amount of people getting badly hurt was, I mean, then you just accepted it because it was what was happening. But there were people working behind the scenes all the time to make it safer. So nowadays the racing is much, much safer. Um, because the tracks are safer, there's less things to hit. Basically, there's more runoff, and the riding gear has come on leaps and bounds. When I when I started racing, basically you just wore tissue thin leathers, and and that was it. You know, you might as well have been wearing a onesie. You know, uh, really. You know, now the the, the leathers are, are just reinforced with armor and everything. So, so it has become much. Like I say, the the daring is still there. You wouldn't be there if you weren't very brave and if mm. you weren't prepared to get hurt because, you know, they do still get hurt. But the possibility, the chances of getting hurt are much less now and it's become much more of a science. Yeah. Uh, Formula One's the same, but luckily because the motorbikes are such weird things, they lean and they, you know, they pitch and they yaw and they roll and they do all these strange things that cars don't. Um it, it's not as scientific as Formula One, but but it has become much more technical. You know, it's all about finding a tenth of a second here with your electronics or your suspension settings or so on. But I, I mean, um, I'm a big fan of Hunter Thompson, and in the Great Shark Hunt, obviously he liked motorbikes as well. 
um, in The Great Shark Hunt, which is a collection of his writings in the Washington Post and so on, uh, which is a wonderful, wonderful book. And he talks about going, visiting USF, USAF stations in the Mojave Desert and so on. And, and he's sort of there in the 50s, in the years after the war, and all the, all the test pilots are nutters. You know, yeah. basically, yeah. it's probably a bit before Jaeger and so on, but they're, they're basically nutters. And, and, and they're doing these ridiculously dangerous things, and they're kind of probably going yeehaw as they do it. And, and, and they come back to, to land and they say, they write their little report, and, and off they go and get blind drunk and then ride their Harley Davidson across the desert 100 miles an hour and go home and do whatever. You know, he went back to the same USAF base in the 70s and was just completely stunned by how it had changed become completely scientific you know that these guys they didn't drink they didn't have mm. motorbikes you know they, they saw they saw alcohol as ridiculous they saw motorbikes as dangerous and they went off in their jet jet fighters to do the break yeah. to do mach 3 or whatever they were doing in those days and however talented they were that wasn't the point they had to be able to come back and write a 28-page report mm. about exactly how they achieved what they achieved so so that all the romance had gone out of it become a science and 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 that's going back to what we were saying earlier is a bit like racing you know it's it's become much more of a science mm. than a, it's not about daring do that's still there but it's about science it's about finding those extra tenths of a second by yeah twiddling with this or you know on your laptop you know you've got your you, you've got four electronics engineers you know working yeah, on you your engine mapping and, and plug it into a usb is the it, first it, thing exactly you, you know and and um so yeah, the romance has gone out of it completely. Um, you know, unless you want to write the romance into it, basically. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah, it becomes it becomes much more about the personalities, and I think that's why people are uh, so attracted to people like Marquez and Crutchlow and Rossi because they've got yeah. that little element of the the old kind of seventies and eighties daredevil in them. Yeah, and I think Formula One. I mean, I haven't really watched Formula One in 20 years, really. Uh, once they all started flying around in private jets, I kind of lost interest. Um, but funny enough, they're all doing that in MotoGP now. <laughs> yeah. But, but yet yeah, somehow, MotoGP and, and Long May It Rain, they're still characters. Mm. And they still say what they think. And they still put their, f- put their feet in it and say things they shouldn't do. And, and just seem to enjoy what they do a lot more than Formula One people because although MotoGP's become very scientific, it's still nowhere near as scientific as Formula One. So, and we have an amazing rainbow of characters, you know, from Valentino Rossi, who's the kind of rock and roll star, Mark Marquez, the smiling assassin, Cal Crutchlow, the kind of the Coventry kid made good, you know, right the way down to sort of someone like Danny Pedrosa, who's the meekest, mildest, quietest mm-hmm. person you'll ever meet on this planet. So you've got that full full rainbow of characters which I think we're really lucky to have and um, I think is important you know and, and, and there's also some really quite nasty rivalries going on at the moment which is also important you know people forget I think when people watch motorbikes go around the racetrack they think it's just blokes riding or, 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 or women riding their motorbikes around around a racetrack you know there's so much more going yeah. on you know it's not like an accountancy job you're not no. doing that job unless you really want to do that yeah, job. Yeah, and, and they're all kind of axe murderers, basically. They're, they're all <laughs> trying to do the most unspeakable things to each other. You know, or they're riding around on the motorbikes and it lo- looks like... And they're pulling tricks on each other all the time, which most people don't see. You mm. know, they're not trying to knock each other off quite 
but they're trying to stitch each other up all the time. They're, they're, it's a nasty, vicious sport, which is one reason I love it. You know, it, it's mm. it's um, it's one of I always say it's bizarre in that it's so nasty and so vindictive, and yet let's say ninety nine times out of a hundred, the level of respect that they have for each other beneath that hatred. I don't think you get in any other sport because no. there's that recognition of I hate this guy yeah, yeah. but I, I, if I do something stupid I'm not going to knock him over and get a red card I could kill him exactly exactly yeah exactly and, and, and the thing about them is that most of them are actually nice people I, I, I like most of them not all of them and, and you know it's hard to know you're, in a, you're a journalist you kind of you sort of get fairly close mm-hmm. to them but you don't really see them at home so much um, most of them are pretty nice people but in the real world but when you put, stick them on a motorbike and they know that to succeed at that level you've got to be talented you've got to be technically astute but also you've got to be prepared to do the most vicious nasty things and, you know they're playing mind games with people with each other off the track and then they're doing they're really stitching each other up when they're on the motorbikes you know mm-hmm. and, and this is at 180 190 miles an hour you know so it's it's quite a glorious thing to um, to witness I think Let's finish up with a kind of a left field question. You talked about Hunter S. Thompson and you've actually, you've got a book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Racing from memory. What are some, what's some works of fiction or books that feature motorcycles that you've read and gone, they get it. It's not just like, oh, here's the, here's the bad boy or the bad girl on the, on the bike. It's, they get what motorbikes are. I would say the only two writers that really excite me when writing about motorbikes are Hunter Thompson, mm-hmm. um, because he he rode bikes a lot. He was a big bike rider, and obviously he wrote his first real book was Hell's Angels, which is just a, a wonderful, wonderful book of, of reportage, you know, of really embedding yourself with with the bad people and properly embedding himself with the Hell's Angels and writing a fantastic book about them at a really important time when they were the kind of they were the kind of um, the figures of hatred in the states really weren't they at the time and Lawrence of Arabia T. Lawrence I mean he 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 wrote uh, no one's ever written better than him about riding motorbikes and and, the, and um, plug for the book again he he there's a chapter all about Lawrence and, and his love of motorbikes and from which I quote extensively I had to pay the um, seven pillars um, of Wisdom Foundation, fifty pounds for uh, use of his um, his copyright in the book. <laughs> um, so I, I, I would say Thompson and Lawrence. Yeah, um, you know, motor, motorbikes isn't particularly a kind of um, a, a kind of highbrow pursuit. Let's say, <laughs> for want of a better. Um, so there's not an awful lot of mm. people that write well about it, and but I would, yeah. Thompson and Lawrence are the only people where I go, wow, you know, yeah. you know you, and especially Lawrence, you have completely encapsulated what it's all about. Lovely. Thank you very much, Matt Speed. Thank and you. all your other books are out now on, what's your website? It's at www.mattoxley.bigcartel.com. Um, or I guess if you Google it or something, you'll find it. And yeah, Speed, the one generally modern pleasure. Thank you. Lovely. Thanks very much. Thanks, Trent. Thank you very much for listening. And of course, thank you to all our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash bookshambles. If you would like to join them, we'll be back next week with another episode. In the meantime, uh, don't forget to check out all the new stuff that is on 
the Cosmic Shambles Network website. We have some uh, new videos with Ginny Smith and Dean Burnett and Michelle Dickinson making instant ice cream uh, using kitchen science. The Richard Feynman documentary is there if you've not caught up with that. Uh, Helen Chersky's blog series from her mission to the Arctic and lots more. So we will see you again next week. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Mm-hmm.